So today is Resurrection Day. Amen. That's good news. He is risen and risen indeed. One of the reflections that just captures my heart when we think about the resurrection of Jesus and, and what it proved and what it meant, and it's so vast and so deep, but there is a deep human question that resides in all of us Believer, unbeliever, out there in the world, in here in the church, doesn't matter. There's a deep, deep question that I believe God has imprinted onto our souls. And it has to do with the question, some of those deep questions about life that we could put in Easter language and say, who has the power to resurrect my life? Is there anyone who has the power to resurrect my life? Because if we're honest and, and keep with the, the motif of Easter week, I think every single human on the planet, if they're honest, can identify with the Friday Jesus on the cross. There is pain in life. There is suffering in life. There is suffering that comes at at the hands of injustice, there is betrayal, there is rejection, and there is ultimately death. And I don't mean to be too morbid on Resurrection Day, but if you don't understand and, and appreciate the depth from whence we came, resurrection doesn't really mean anything. So Good Friday and everything that Jesus went through on the cross on our behalf even if you step back from believing that it was, it's on our behalf, Jesus is experienced for a moment, not that we're doing that, but just to look at the sheer humanity of what Jesus went through, and you have to realize and recognize and appreciate he is going through the worst that every human will experience whether they want to or not. It's all inevitable. Not the cross itself, because we don't have that method of torture anymore. But every single human at some level knows life can be painful. There is suffering. There is rejection. There is injustice. There is betrayal. There is ultimately death. Who has ever avoided that? And so there also are deep, honest, real questions, because we all know that the death that Jesus experienced on the cross was not simply physical, right? There's so much in there that's emotional, it's spiritual. There's betrayal, rejection, injustice. I mean, this is the human suffering of the world that, yes, now let's go back to our believer's lens, he was taking on by choice in our place. But all of it is begging deep, deep questions as we see Friday and we're like, wow, that is the human experience. Jesus is embodying, he's taking on the human experience. When we get to Sunday, the question that is really, really right there that we should be asking is, okay, Jesus can die in our place. Does he have the power to resurrect us? Because there are many, there have been many, many, many that have come before him that have, you could say, of course, not anyone like Jesus, but that have lived good lives that have died unjustly, that people can identify with as martyrs, right? Like, oh, wow, that's, that was a good person, and then they died unjustly, and there's an identification with them. And, but let's get to that Sunday question of, but is there anyone that you can entrust your life to that can resurrect your life? Because we've all experienced that Friday, pain, suffering, rejection, betrayal, death at some level in our life because it's a broken and fallen world. But who, who is there to trust with your life to say, yeah, I, I, that's about all I can do on my own strength is Friday. Is there anybody out there that can truly resurrect my life? And I want to look at that 
lens or with that lens today into the resurrection. The same Jesus of yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that rose from the dead and is alive today is that same Jesus who proved that he is the one and only Savior of the world who is worthy of us putting hope in and trust in that he is that one source that can truly resurrect a life. And there are two unbelievably beautiful examples. There are so many, but I just want to reference two of his own followers who had experienced a bunch of that Friday mess that we all experienced, and then they experienced the resurrection power of Jesus in their life. And my encouragement to us is going to be that that same resurrecting of life power that is available back then is available today right now. Even more so, Jesus said, because now he sends the Spirit directly to resurrect us and be with us, never leave us or forsake us, and make us from one degree of glory to another more like him. Let's, let's step back a little bit and reflect on some of the words of one of the great theologians of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, as he was looking back on the lives transformed by the resurrected Jesus and the Holy Spirit in them. And he said this in Romans 8, 11, that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That is an utterly shocking thought. I think this is one of those verses that's got to be memorized by every Christian or at least the truth of it to be able to orient yourself, anchor your hope, especially in those moments and times of life where you experience the Friday mess of life, the deaths that take place, the challenges, the suffering, the pain. And it, at that point, your soul is looking for a place to orient and say, but is there hope? Is there a resurrection that can take place not just after I die, but now? We all want that, right? We, I mean, we could, that's, that's an unbelievably human longing and desire. We don't just like, well, I'm, I just want to, yeah, it's, I'm fine with just suffering, death, betrayal, loss, rejection, whatever, all the horrible things that this world can bring our ways. Yeah, I'm good with that because I know someday I'm resurrected. Now, there's some ultimate hope there, but what about now? Does God care about your life now? Absolutely, 100%. I believe Jesus' core gospel message is that eternity starts now. That what we're going to experience after this life is just what we experience in this life with him and just way more, much greater measure. That's why Jesus said when he, 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 to orient ourselves about what Jesus' mission on earth was, he said in John 10, 10, there is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the Friday. That's the Friday mess. We all know it. Life hurts. Life's painful. There's suffering. It's hard. Because there's a thief, an enemy of your soul. The spiritual battle is real. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And unfortunately, it works. We live in a fallen world. And right now, we see that. But, Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And if you look at the followers of Jesus and his message and the message of Jesus and the way he treats people, there is a hundred percent guarantee that he means that that abundant life starts now. As soon as you encounter Jesus for the first time, that abundant life starts now. Jesus never encountered someone with all this pain and suffering and rejection and hurt and said, well, too bad for your life now. You're going to sit in it. You're going to stay in it. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I want to do. There's nothing my father wills to do. But don't worry, the next life has a difference. Did Jesus ever say that to anyone? How can we say it to ourselves then? Oh, well, God, uh, it's just too big for God. 
We all do it. Every single time Jesus encountered someone, he said, here's what the kingdom of heaven tastes like. Here's an encounter of a little more heaven on earth. Here's an encounter of the abundant life. Here's an encounter of resurrection power. Here's an encounter of my victory. However you want to say it. It's all the same gospel. It's that Jesus says, here's abundant life right now. And then here's more. And here's more. So I want to encourage us that Resurrection Day is the proof that we need. That in every single life situation that we face until the day we die, that, that there should be this spiritual reflex of, yes, this is hard, but that, this is Friday, but Sunday already happened. But there is resurrection power available now. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and conquered all of sin, hell, and death lives in me. That's the Bible. <laughs> lives in you. And that's meant to just be that eternal hope that says more abundant life. I will not accept defeat. I will not accept Friday as my life. I am saying Sunday is my life. More and more. Come on, Lord. And I 100% believe that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's a lifelong learning process where we learn to live instead of on Friday, from Sunday. For the rest of the days of our life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 dynamically, specifically says it. As you encounter Jesus, and it's an ongoing thing, you will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And there's no question whatsoever he is talking about this life now. So our encouragement today is don't settle for Friday. Believe in Sunday. A couple of inspiring examples. And every single time you read in the Bible an example of a life transformed, that's a testimony. And every single testimony that you ever hear in the Bible or in life now, you know what that is? It's an invitation for you. Because God doesn't play favorites. He just looks for willing vessels. He looks for where the door is open. As Revelation 3 says, I, Jesus, to a church, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door to me, I'll come in and share a meal with him. It's like, what? Jesus, what? You're outside? Every time we think in a Friday mindset, he's outside. So it's real. He's saying, you want more of me? I'm knocking right now. You want to see more of my glory, more of the resurrection power infused into your life? You want to see my abundant life? You can feel that Friday is kind of raining right now, if you will, in the hurt and the brokenness and pain. Well, I got some Sunday for you, and I'm knocking. Are you going to open the door? And so every testimony is an invitation. If you can identify with this person, put them, put you, put yourself in their shoes in any way and say, yeah, I can relate to them. I can relate to them in the hurt. I can relate to them in the pain, in the brokenness. And then you watch Jesus do his thing and say, and I want to relate to them in the Sunday resurrection power. So, Jesus, I'm like them and I'm opening the door. So let's look at a couple testimonies and just be encouraged on the Resurrection life. Life resurrecting. So there's a woman named Mary Magdalene. I like to start at the end of her story where we see the resurrecting power of Jesus at work. And then we'll go back a little bit and see how much this resurrecting power was taking place. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase because there's a lot of great scripture here. Um, but we'll, we'll start in Matthew 28. And we'll, we'll read verses 1 to 10 if you got it. Apologize if it's a little hard to read up there. I'll try to enunciate. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Jesus' mother, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he had said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Mary Magdalene's story of the first person to see Jesus, see the risen, exalted King Jesus, it's corroborated in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is very interesting to one of the very few episode scenes with details that's corroborated in all four of the Gospels, that Mary is the first person to see the risen Jesus. But not only was she the first person to witness the resurrection, she was the first person commissioned to be a witness about the resurrection. And that is no small deal. From the angel, she got the message, go and tell. From Jesus himself, she got the message, go and tell. This is utterly astounding that it would even be in the Bible, frankly. If the early church is trying to build credibility in their story that Jesus rose from the dead, the last thing they should ever do is make the linchpin of the story a woman. It's funny, but it's not. Because at that time, in that culture, even if a woman witnessed a crime firsthand, she was not allowed to be the witness in court. Because the idea, as horrible as it sounds to us, as normal as it was to them, a woman could not be trusted as a credible witness for anything of great value. But God laughs at that insanity and says, ah, I choose Mary as the first witness of the resurrection and the first to be commissioned to witness about the resurrection. This is unbelievably cool. There's a couple of phrases in here that make it even more cool. <laughs> when the angel says, go and tell his disciples, that go, in Matthew, this is 28, 7. This is the same exact word. This is the same exact commissioning type word that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, to go and make disciples of all nations. So, especially given that it's the same book, it's even the same chapter, it's the same author, the words matter. We're supposed to see, we're supposed to remember, we're supposed to notice that Mary actually was the first to get the great commission. And then Jesus decided to include the boys a little bit later as well. In Matthew 28, 10, when Jesus talks to Mary and says, go and tell, that's a good word. Good, good word. Apongelo. It means proclaim. 
It's the same word used earlier in the book of Matthew to describe Jesus' own preaching ministry. In Matthew 12, 18, it's actually a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, a prophetic passage where God speaks and says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So go and tell the disciples that he is risen. Go and proclaim the good news that he is risen. It is safe to say that Mary Magdalene was the first preacher of the resurrection. She was the first human on the planet to ever get to and be commissioned by Jesus to go proclaim to another human he is risen. What an honor. Chosen by God. Jesus chose to meet them on the way as they were running to the disciples. That was a choice by God. They didn't run into him. They didn't find him. It says Jesus appeared to them. Let's have some fun here. Let's turn things upside down a little. What an honor. That is a resurrected and resurrecting life. Mary Magdalene. When we are introduced to her, she was in the the Friday mindset. She was in the Friday experience in her own world. The pain, the suffering, the rejection, the death, the spiritual death. In Luke 8, it says about her, when Jesus was going through cities and villages proclaiming, ah, And bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. How's that in your biography? How's that as your introduction to the world? This is the first thing we hear about her. There's more to it, though. Mary Magdalene, that means she was from the city of Magdala, which was not a good place. Any of you from a not good place that you'd be embarrassed of, a family, a city, a location, a place, that's this, this, it carried a stigma. They were known for the licentiousness. They were known for promiscuity. They were known for being those who had tossed off all, you know, uh, vestiges of, religious adherence and obedience, and they were, they were a modern Sodom and Gomorrah for that time. So all you had to say was Mary Magdalene, and the scars were carried with her and, and apparent. Not only was that a reality, but the fact that she then was someone who had seven demons cast out of her, that says something. That says something huge about where she was at at that time, the amount of that Friday bondage of pain, suffering, and death. I wish there was that origin story in the Gospels where she encountered Jesus and and experienced that deliverance because seven demons is a whole lot of bondage. That's, that's like a, you are in a living death. You are, in, you are spiritually living but dead. And then to add to that, it said she was one of infirmities that Jesus had healed. At that time, to be in a physical state of infirmity, there was the, the cultural understanding that, well, that must be a judgment by God against you. Because of your sin, God is judging you right now with whatever said infirmity. And so you, you from these little details, we kind of can dig in a bit to a biography of a woman who was from 
the wrong side of town, the wrong place, a, a shameful family, a shameful place. She had physical infirmities that would make her seen judged as a, just a dirty sinner who was, who was opposed by God. She carried a spiritual weight of demonic activity that was a real darkness and a real bondage. So she is a person that would be rejected, outcasted. Nobody, nobody's going to marry her. She is unclean in all sorts of different ways. She has real no prospects in life for anything abundant. If there's one word that could describe her life, it would be shame. She's just going to be covered in shame. She's going to live in that death of shame every day. She's going to feel she is not good enough. She has been rejected and outcasted from everywhere by God himself, evidenced in her body by all of those around her that she would now encounter. As soon as they find out where she's from, it's like, you know, that's the shame. Shame is like, oh, I, I have secrets. I'm covered in shame. If people knew about me, they would reject me. That's that horrible human emotion. And she had all of it. And from the cultural standpoint, all for good reason. So she really has no choice in life but shame. And then she meets Jesus. I look at all that and the way that she encountered Jesus, met Jesus, sought Jesus. I love how it says that it was just before dawn and they, Mary, was also the first one seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus. Seeking to encounter Jesus. She had the faith that even though she saw him die, she was the one seeking Jesus. And where did that get her? Honor. A life of honor. A life resurrecting that was transformed from shame in every understandable way in her culture to a life that <laughs> Jesus chose as the one whom he would meet on the way and bestow upon her, lavish upon her, the honor of the first to see Jesus and the first to be commissioned by Jesus to be his preacher of the resurrection, his witness of the resurrection. That is honor. And so the encouragement is, if you can identify with Mary in any way, about a life that on your own strength and by the wrongness and the brokenness and the suffering and injustice of this world, if you can identify in any way with shame, you carry it, it covers you, you feel it, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you'll never live up. Rejection is just what is going to be yours. Look to Sunday. Look to the risen one. Because if Jesus can take a life of like Mary from shame to honor. He can do the same for you. In increasing measure. Not honor among people because you need to look good. Honored honor between you and Jesus. So that he can look in your eyes and you look in his. And he can say, let's, let's just wipe away that shame. It's not how I see you. Let me show you how I see you. Here's some honor. It's not because Jesus is into positional power and authority. It's because sometimes he needs to do things in our lives in concrete ways to show us how he actually feels about us. And so for Mary, he's saying, let me convince you. Let me prove to you. Let me show you how I see you. All that shame you carried. It's got to go because I've got something of honor for you. And the two can't <laughs> go together. So step into the honor that God sees you with. And that is the heart 
of Jesus. That's the same yesterday, today, and forever for every single one of us. Shame is not a fruit of the Spirit. And so if there's any tiny little vestiges that remain, or they're huge and they cover you, or they pop up on a hard day or a hard situation, that's the Friday mess. And Jesus is saying, there's the Sunday hope. And I'm knocking. I don't want you to live with any shame. So seek me and watch how I show up and give you some honor. That's some good news. That's some resurrecting life type news that we all need. One more example. There's this guy named Peter. Love that guy. Let's go to see where the resurrecting life was taking place in him. So this is in Acts chapter 3, post-resurrection of Jesus, post-Pentecost, so there's the filling of the Spirit. So this is now the world in which we all live as believers in Jesus. There's this fantastic account in Acts chapter 3 that I'm going to kind of quickly run through and then get to, there's a lot of scripture covering it, so I'll kind of paraphrase the story and then get to a few specific verses. So it says that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Lame man from birth was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. It's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So just kind of see that scene. They're walking up to Church, basically, they daily went for times of prayer and worship. And so there was a man, lame, couldn't walk from birth, who would be daily just set in front. Kind of like they set him in front of the church asking for alms every day. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. They said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. Rise up and walk. That's some resurrecting power. Peter, at that point, had the confidence to say, I might not have any money and gold, silver and gold right now on me, but I have, I have something I've got something. I mean, I, I love that confidence. Confidence and arrogance are not the same thing. I'm 100% convinced God does not want us arrogant. He says it in the Bible. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there can be a humility based on what you know is your power, which is nothing, <laughs> When you've gotten far enough down that road of being humbled or being humiliated, something happens. You begin to depend on God, and then you watch him do stuff through you that's really powerful. And you start to actually grow a humble confidence. It's humble because you know for any moment if you're disconnected from him, it's no, you got nothing. But it's confidence like Peter, he felt in the moment, I'm connected right now to God. I've got something for you. I like it. I don't want to live arrogant, but I want to live humbly confident. Peter has a confidence that God wants you to have. That when you see the suffering of Friday upon a life, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, are your pockets empty in every way? Or is there a little fire that rises up in you that says, ooh, I got something. I got something for you. I know the solution you're looking for. I know him personally. Where's Peter coming from? This is not just ideas and theology. This is because his life has been resurrected. And the more your life has been resurrected, the more a confident confidence will be in you when you see people suffering in Friday mess. You'll be like, oh, 
but I got something because I know what I've received and now I can freely give. This is a resurrecting life. This is a life that looks like Jesus. That's the verse I wanted to focus on. When the religious leaders essentially arraigned him, indicted him, were going to arrest him, gathered him, and they say, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Why are you, why are you messing with our status quo? Really? Verse 13 of Acts chapter 4, this was their conclusion as Peter gave a bold and courageous defense of what they had done. And it was a humble offense, defense, wait. It was, <laughs> let me make sure I don't say that wrong. It was a humble explanation that, G, or that Peter gave. Listen to this in chapter 4, verse 8. Rulers of the people, oh, let me, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's some resurrecting life in him, said to them, rulers of the people, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of God that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone that was rejected by you. Jesus is the stone, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among by which men must be saved. So there's the humble confidence. He gave Jesus all the glory, all the honor, all the credit. He knows he's filled with the Spirit. And he says, oh, we, <laughs> we didn't do anything. This is Jesus. We did a good deed. We followed along what Jesus was doing, essentially. But it's Jesus' power if you're wanting to know the means by which this man was healed. So there's that humble confidence. So there's an unbelievable, undeniable power in Peter, and there's also a boldness in the face of adversity. I mean, these religious leaders just had just killed Jesus. So this is no small thing for Peter to stand before them boldly and say, we're on team Jesus, by the way. The one, he even says it to their face, the one whom you crucified, in case you forgot. It's his power flowing through us. That is a wild amount of boldness, given that those religious leaders, in a sense, hold Peter's life in their hands, and they had just killed Jesus. So, unbelievable boldness in the, face of adversity, in the face of possible death, and power by the Spirit, to the point that it says in Acts 5.13, when these leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. The leaders were astonished. I love that that is the exact same word used to describe the leader's response to Jesus in the book of Luke, which, by the way, Luke is the author of Acts. So Luke uses the same word intentionally to describe how people respond to Jesus as how people respond to his spirit-filled disciples, because we're supposed to remind people of Jesus. When we live in greater measure in the resurrection power of Jesus, in the resurrecting life, we are going to reflect Jesus to the world. That's part of Luke's point by saying the religious leaders are responding the same exact way. They're astonished at the work of Jesus. So what it says in Luke 4.32 and Luke 9.43, all were astonished at the teaching of Jesus. All were astonished at the majesty of God flowing through him in his power. And then they said people were astonished at Peter. 
these uneducated common men. The word common is a fun one. We've talked about it before, but if you weren't with us, I love it. It's God's blessing over your life today. It's idiotes. It's a negative term now. Idiot. And it was negative then. Idiotes. It means you're nothing. You're nothing special. You're a commoner. You're a peasant. You're not educated. You're clearly inferior to us. That's the religious leader's view of them. They're just these idiotes, these idiots. Nothing. Peasants. Uneducated. Dumb. So it's confusing to them that these idiots are bold in the face of death and have a power and authority that they've never even sniffed at. So they're confused. But let's talk about Peter for just a couple more minutes here. That is a resurrected life. That is a resurrecting life. That Peter had been transformed so much, he is being treated like Jesus because his life is so much like Jesus. That's a goal for all of us. Peter did not start there. In fact, he started <laughs> and along the way had some very, very opposite and low moments that were not this resurrected life. He talked a huge game. He was arrogant. If you want to use that word, he was arrogant. He told Jesus at various times that he loved him more than all of his other disciples. He told him that in the presence of his other disciples. I mean, that's his brother, Andrew, is there. His best friends, James and John, are there. I mean, there's a team, right? You're on a team. Whether this is a sports setting or a work setting, Imagine yourself, put yourself in these shoes, in front of the team, in front of your fellow, you know, teammates. You tell the boss, the coach, the leader, yeah, you know what, Jesus? I'm your guy. I love you more than anyone else in this room. And then he goes on to make this arrogant declaration that, you know what? If things get hard, all of them might betray you. I would never betray you. Like, I'm surprised he made it out. That's, that's some, it's real life, and that's part of why, man, the Gospels are so good. The whole Bible is so good in that it's so honest in its depiction of the heroes. There's really only one hero. Everyone else kind of stumbles along the way, but if you seek him enough and open the door enough, you can become like the hero in some resurrection power. We've already seen it. But if you stumble and fall like an idiotes, guess what? Welcome to the party. That's supposed to be the message. So Peter says some crazy stuff and then just gets utterly humiliated. Utterly humiliated. Which, by the way, might sometimes be the only path to humility. In Matthew 26, after Jesus was crucified and all the disciples fled, including Peter. So there's, you know, betrayal number one, not following through on his promise, his big talk, big game. Times got tough, they all fled, including Peter. But then it gets even worse. It says in verse 71 of Matthew 26, Peter went out to the entrance, and a servant girl saw him, which, by the way, we talked a little earlier or mentioned the, the plight of women at that time as far as not being credible witnesses. So there's nothing worse than being, or excuse me, there's only one thing worse than being a grown woman as far as your credibility, and that would be a little woman, a young woman. The Bible intentionally Matthew intentionally points out to us that it's a little servant girl. So there you go, young slave girl. 
the person who literally has the least credibility on the planet in the culture at the time is the one God uses to humiliate and humble the great Peter. The irony of God. I think he has fun with this stuff. I really do. I think he laughs. He's like, Peter, I remember the big game you talked in front of all your brothers. I'm going to put you to the test. A servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, hey, this man was with Jesus. And Peter again denied it. So this is the third time now. So this is the culminating moment of denial. The culminating moment is a young slave girl who points out Peter. And Peter, in all of his great high character, boldness, authority, Christ-likeness, what does he do? Again, he denies it. This is the third time he denies even knowing Jesus. This time with an oath. So he gets all high and mighty and swears with an oath. That's like saying, hey, let's bring out the notary public here. I swear on an oath. What a liar. That's good news for all of us. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. He got humiliated. But the good news is it led to repentance. Because if it does, resurrection life is going to start to infuse your veins. There is no point too low where the resurrection power of Jesus cannot find you and resurrect you from the dead to the point where you too can become like Peter from this utterly low point, the worst possible denial, lying, betrayal, cowardice in front of a young servant girl. You don't get any more cowardly. It's like the, these juxtapositions, the irony, these are intentional by God to point out you don't get more cowardly. It's a little girl who means nothing. And look at you, afraid to even say you knew him. You don't get more cowardly. That is the depths of cowardly betrayal. He went out and wept bitterly. <sighs> Jesus found him after the resurrection and in the grace that's always available, knocking on our door every day, Jesus said, hey, do you love me? And there was a restoration. There's no coincidence. Jesus said it to him three times to break the curses that he had spoken. Three times, G Peter denied even knowing him. Three times, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And he gets restored. And the resurrection life, he's back on track to being resurrected to be like Jesus to the point that now in Acts, after the Holy Spirit infuses him and he's seeking Jesus, like Mary, he becomes so powerful and so bold that even though the religious leaders see him as an idiot, they also recognize that he is astonishing. Like Jesus, he must have been with Jesus. And that's it right there. If you want more resurrection life, just be with Jesus. If something needs resurrecting in your life, just be with Jesus. There is no more complicated answer. Spoken on the lips of the religious leaders who 
hated Jesus. They were astonished at the boldness coming from this coward. They were astonished at the power coming from this idiot. Their only conclusion was, man, oh yeah, that guy had been with Jesus. Mary had been with Jesus. She sought him. He responded with encounter. It's all the same thing. If you need, when you recognize you need, if you are hungry for more resurrection life, if you know there's a place in life, an area right now, and there should be something, if you can't find anything, you're either Jesus or not being honest with yourself. So I'm serious. There's always more. The journey of being a disciple, which is on the wall, is lifelong. And that's meant to be good news. It's meant to be encouraging that there's always more. God's never done with you. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's good news that there's always more resurrection life to be encountered. There's always more of the resurrecting of our life to be encountered. From one degree of glory to another right now in this life. But we got to... Open the door every day. We've got to be willing to look at those places that are not yet resurrected. There might be some shame. There might be some cowardice. Whatever it might be. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm knocking. Do you want some resurrection life? Do you want to be resurrected from that? Because I'm alive. And I want to put my life in you. Let's pray along those lines. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. I will dance a new dance like day.